As we turn to Romans chapter 10, um, I just want to kind of, as we look at this text of Scripture here this morning, um, it's good to understand really where we've been in this study in Romans. Uh, It's hard just to kind of pull a verse here and and then preach on a couple of verses. And and sometimes it's good to stop and to really kind of review uh, what we've been dealing with when it comes to the book of Romans. Now remember, Romans 9, 10, 11 is kind of a subsection within the book of Romans. And so we've been in that for several weeks. And Paul's point in these three chapters, as we've seen, has kind of, he's been asking the question, what's God going to do? With Israel, what about Israel? What about his fellow countrymen? And so he wants to answer that question. And he's, as he's sharing these teachings, people in his audience are probably saying, well, wait a minute. Um, Hasn't God's purposes in regard to Israel failed? Because Paul, you know, last time we checked, there's not a lot of Jews believing this gospel that you're saying. Um. And so Paul is asking that question, have God's purpose in regard to Israel failed? Because very few Jews, we can even ask that today, are believing the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to kind of understand where we're at, we kind of kind of look back to where we've been. So I want to share basically seven quick things here. It just kind of outlines chapter 9, 10, and 11 for us. And the first one we we studied in chapter 9, verses 6 to 24, that everybody that God has elected will be saved. If they're not saved already, they're going to be saved before the end of time. And we saw that in verses 6 to 24 of of chapter 9. And then we moved on to 24 and 29 of chapter 9, and Paul kind of makes this statement that not all Israel is going to be saved. As a matter of fact, there's going to be some Gentiles that are going to be saved. And we saw that in that text. And then the third thing we saw was the failure of the Jews to believe was not God's fault, but it was their own fault. See, they can't point their finger at God and say, well, God, this is is your problem. It's not our problem. And we saw that in verses 30 of chapter 9 all the way up until the end of chapter 10, basically. We're still looking at that. But in chapter 11, just so you know where we're going to be going, he says right at the, at the forefront in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? So you, you have to stop and you have to ask the question, um, you know what? Some Jews have believed, including the Apostle Paul. It's not that all the Jews are are going to be unbelievers. Some have believed, including the Apostle Paul. And then in verses 2 to 10 of chapter 11, he says not all the Jews are going to be saved, but only a remnant. Just a remnant of Israel will be saved. And we're going to see how that plays out in the coming weeks. And then verses 11 to 24 of chapter 11, we see that God saves these Gentiles for a purpose. And the purpose is to make Israel, his chosen nation, jealous. They couldn't believe that Gentiles were getting saved. And then the last thing in verses 25 to 32, in the end, God will fulfill his promises to Israel. That's a very important point because there's a lot of people that think, well, no, no, there's a thing going around called replacement theology. Replacement theology says, well, no, Israel's not really important because when the church was birthed, Pentecost, from that point on, all the promises that were meant for Israel now apply to the church. And so it doesn't really matter about Israel. Well, that's not true. And we're going to look at that as we enter into Uh, chapter 11 in in several weeks to come. And so it's important to understand these things, to understand where we have been and where we're going to go, because chapter 10 basically has developed that third reason. The failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault. It wasn't God. 
And so that's what Paul wants them to understand. Now, last week we looked at verse 17 of Romans chapter 10. And it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we answered the the question, well, what is it they're hearing? What are these people hearing? What are they supposed to be hearing? Well, in general, they're they're supposed to be hearing the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What's the gospel? The gospel is basically what tells us about the perfect life, the atoning death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the power of God onto salvation for everyone who believes. That's what Paul says. And we saw that, you know what, there's, there's not going to be everybody believing the gospel. He makes a statement, as a matter of fact, not all have obeyed the gospel. And that sounds kind of like a negative statement, but really there's a, there's a blessing in that negative statement for us. And the blessing is simply this. Maybe not everybody's going to believe the gospel, but you know what? Some will. You're evidence of that fact this morning. You're here. Why? But hopefully you believe the gospel. And as believers, we have this privilege of sharing the gospel message the good news, with those individuals who may be saved. Remember, if people are saved, they're saved because of God's what? Sovereign grace. They're they're saved because of his work in their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of his word. But if they're lost... They're lost because of the hardness of their own hearts, the hardness of their disobedient hearts, their sinful hearts. And so last week we looked at the necessities for someone to be saved. We said, you know, they have to call on Christ, they have to believe in Christ, they have to hear about Christ, they have to hear about Christ through the preaching of his word and that comes because there's people who are being sent to preach his word I mean the first thing you need if you're not a Christian here this morning is to understand and to hear the gospel what's the gospel the gospel is the biblical message of salvation from sin through the work of Christ on the cross that's what the gospel is And so for them to believe, or for you to believe on Christ for salvation, you first have to, what? You're going to hear about him. And you have to hear him. And we talked a little bit about verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we talked about, that's not so much the way that God works through somebody else, but it's the idea that when someone is presenting the gospel, it's as if Christ himself were there speaking. It's a subjective genitive. And so today we want to look at, here's Paul's audience. They're listening to him teach. And he's saying some pretty radical things. And I'm sure that hands started to creep up in the crowd going, hey, wait a minute. I got a question. I got a question. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes verses 18 to 21 in answer to their potential questions. And so we want to look at excuses for unbelief. So follow along in your copy of the the Word of God. There there should be one in front of you if you don't have one. Turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 18. Paul writes this, But I ask, have they not heard? Now remember, he's speaking of the Jews. Have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out. To all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did not Israel understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask 
for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. May God bless the reading of his word this morning to our hearts. Now last week, we looked at the necessity of for intellectual content of the gospel. In other words, you have to have some facts. You can't just get up and Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was white as snow. And, and go on with that and somebody, well, hallelujah, I'm saved. No, that's the wrong facts. That's not the gospel. You have to have the facts, the intellectual content of the gospel. But you also have to have the preaching of that gospel. And this is very important today because people are, you're hearing all kinds of things creep up into the church. A lot of things you're hearing are these fantastic stories of even some Muslims who no one's preached to them, they don't know anything about Jesus, and all of a sudden they're saved. I scratch my head at that. I go, wait a minute. You know, uh, the Bible has a prescribed way kind of that God works. He works through the power of his word, through the power of his spirit, and he sends individuals out to preach the gospel. And so preaching is something that is essential. And so we talked a little bit about how you can have all the facts, the intellectual content of the gospel, and not have faith. I mean, that's where I was for 19 years of my life. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. If you asked me, you know, is there a God? I would have said yes. If you asked me, well, do you believe that he has a son? Yeah, his name's Jesus. If you asked me, well, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus lived the perfect life and he died on a cross. Did he do anything else? Yeah, he, was, he rose the third day. And now he's with the Father in heaven. I'd be able to tell you that. Any Catholic worth their salt would be able to tell you that. It's just basic factual information. I had all the facts for the most part, but you know what I didn't have? I didn't have any faith. Big difference. I wasn't converted. Even though I had all the intellectual information. Now, on the other side of that picture, there are some people, unfortunately, that have faith, but they don't have the right facts. I mean, today people put their faith in all kinds of things. I mean, this past week and this weekend, you know what's going on out. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Out in the, in the middle of the, the, the Nevada desert, the middle of nowhere, the burning man. I mean, who thought this one up? I mean, you know, you go on there and you start looking about this. just crazy stuff. But you know what? People go there. They're putting their faith in that, whether they want to believe it or not. There's a lot of people who are in the cults who have chosen to put their faith in something other than the God of the Bible. See, this section of Scripture, Paul is addressing specifically the unbelief of Jews, the unbelief of Israel. And even in John chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that he came unto his own, Christ came unto his own, and what happened? They didn't want anything to do with him. It said they, re- he re- they received him not. We've seen in Romans chapter 9, if you turn back a couple pages there, verse 32, that Christ was a what? A stumbling block to them. They couldn't figure this out. They couldn't grasp the idea, beloved, that somehow their justification before God was by faith alone in Christ alone. That that just blew their mind. Well, why didn't Israel see these things? Why were they so blind to the plain teaching of Scripture? Martin Lloyd-Jones points out a couple things about Israel. He says, first of all, they were, they were proud nationally. Kind of like as a United States citizen, and we should be, but we're prideful people. It's probably the greatest nation on the earth. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So we have a sense of pride, except for 
some unnamed quarterbacks. We won't go there. But we got to pray for that young man, get his priorities straightened out. But they, Israel was, was a prideful people. They were, they were pride. Why were they so prideful? Well, they were saying, we alone are God's chosen people. God chose us. He didn't choose you. And so what does God do? God provokes them by those who are not part of their little group. <laughs> the second thing that they had a problem with is they were prideful in their knowledge of Scripture. If you've ever talked to someone of the Jewish faith that's in any way still connected to their faith, I mean, they practice it all, they have a pretty good knowledge of Scripture. A lot of them do. They like to debate. They'll go back and forth with you. And so they, they had a, a, a prideful attitude of their knowledge of Scripture. John five thirty nine. basically the Jew says, hey, we alone have God's law. You don't have it. He didn't give it to the Gentiles. He gave it to us. So just remember that. And so God provokes them to anger by this nation, these people outside of their own nation, the Gentiles, who had no understanding at all. And they started getting saved. Well, the third thing Martin Lloyd-Jones points out is that the Jews were relying on their works to gain righteousness. Hello, been there, done that. You know, I... You know, I think two of the deadliest stumbling blocks to the gospel, two of the deadliest stumbling blocks to someone just grabbing a hold of the gospel and being saved are traditions and self-righteousness. Traditions and self-righteousness. I mean, today there are people in our society more than ever who are just like the Jews. They're trying to... Appease their God through their traditions. They go to church every week. It's a tradition. They don't get anything out of it. There's a faith disconnect between the facts and what they are really having their faith in. And then there's people that basically are trying to establish their own self-righteousness before God. Not by trusting in his righteousness, but by trusting in their own. Sometimes, you know, I, I think of this and I think, boy, why do we make it so difficult? Why do we make this Christian thing so difficult? It's really not. God doesn't want it to be difficult. Sure, there's going to be challenges, and, and I understand that. But it, it's not really a difficult message. I mean, God's way is pretty simple, I would think. I mean, God said through the Apostle Paul in verse 13 of Romans chapter 10 that what? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That doesn't sound like rocket science to me. It's pretty simple. But you know what? That's how life is, isn't it? We take the simple things and we make them difficult. We make them just like a burden. We make them so much more difficult. Think about it. Whether it's relationships within a marriage. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. You know, just think of the other person better than yourself and you pretty much get along. But what do we do? Well, we bring in all this stuff and we mix it up. And, well, what a mess this is. Can't communicate with my wife. She can't communicate with me. We make it difficult. Or relationships within the church. Sometimes it's difficult. Relationships with your children when you're raising them. At work, ethics, basically, society in general. We make it all way too difficult. I mean, when you look through scriptures, God points out some basic principles that are relatively simple. And if you practice them, you're going to have wonderful results in your life. But so many times we choose as individuals to do our own thing. Or to do what's going to please people. And as a result, we make things all the more difficult. Well, here in chapter 10, as we begin to look at these closing verses, we're just going to touch on the, the first excuse today because we have communion and we have some other things going on. And we'll finish this message up in probably two weeks. 
But here Paul begins to address excuses while he's addressing his audience. God is giving him the supernatural ability to understand, you know what, they got questions. And the Holy Spirit prompted him to answer their questions before they even asked them. Sounds like somebody else I know in the scripture. His name was Jesus. Don't you love how Jesus is, is teaching? And then he'll say, well, I perceive in your heart. And it's like dead on. And he just, he, he just kind of takes away their, their questions before they even ask it. I mean, that's what Paul is doing here. Now, most of us would probably say Paul was a pretty intellectual guy. He was probably brilliant. Um, he definitely had the area of debating and argument and, and making his point get across down. When you just look throughout Scripture and you see how he interacts with people. He knew what he was doing. But I don't want you to miss his objective here. And this is something that's very practical for us uh, as believers. See, Paul's ultimate objective here in in Romans chapter 10, or even in the book of Romans, his ultimate objective is not to win the argument. That's not his objective. His objective isn't to to win the debate. His objective wasn't to, to make his countrymen, the Jews, look silly and indict them. And say, hey, you know what? You're wrong. I'm right. That's not his objective. Paul wasn't looking to embarrass them, clearly. He didn't want them to look bad. Look back at the first verse of chapter 10. We see a little bit about Paul's heart here. Look at what he says. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, who the Jews, is that they may be what? Saved. That's what his objective was. You even look back at the verse verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have Look at this, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So don't miss Paul's objective. Paul's objective wasn't just, you know, out there arguing for argument's sake. So he could win the debate and win the argument. And a lot of times today, as far as apologetics go, that's what we've turned it into as Christians. So we get in a conversation with somebody, and what's our objective? Our objective is to win. We want them to understand what we believe, and they better, you know, basically believe what we believe when we're done with the conversation, or it's a failure. That's not Paul's objective. His ultimate objective was not just to win the debate. His desire was that they might come to Christ. That they might be saved from their sin. Was Paul bold in his proclamation of the gospel? Definitely. Should we be bold? Definitely. As a matter of fact, it was Paul that said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Right? Why? Because he knew it was the power of God onto salvation for everyone who believes. See, he was bold in his presentation of the gospel. But his desire was to show them the error of their way. And he did it in such a way that didn't embarrass them. He didn't want them to just get upset because he won the debate. But his motive was that they could repent, that they could turn to the Lord and be saved. And see, that's what we need to learn today when we're out sharing the gospel with people, beloved. We need to remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. That when we speak the the truth, what? We speak it in love. I don't hear that going on a lot today, even within the church. There's a lot of people that are sharing a lot of truth, but they're doing it in anything but love. So don't be so concerned with winning the argument or winning the debate or making sure that you're correct 
that you forget about the plight of the, the soul of the person you're talking to. Don't fall into the trap, beloved, that the enemy wants you to fall into. That think, the, the, the thinking that says somehow with your ingenuity and your intellect and your persuasive argument and your slick presentation... Because you've been to all the apologetics conferences and boy, you know how to share the, the, the gospel or your, your cute little track. Don't be so small as to think that somehow you're going to win the world for Christ by any of those means. Now, is there anything wrong with any of those things? No. Don't ever forget the biblical principle. If people are saved, it's because of God's sovereign grace in their lives. People are saved because of God's power, his grace. They're not saved because of your argument or your debate. And unfortunately, the the church is really bought into a lie that's floating around today that says, you know what? Um, Someone who's intellectual will not believe the gospel. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that a lot. Oh, well, you know, they're kind of beyond the, you know, it's a simple, it's a foolish of this earth that he's, you know, he's not going to call the intellectual. Intellect is not a reason people reject the gospel. Intellect is not a reason people reject the gospel. That's a true statement because just look around. There's a lot of intellectual people here this morning. A lot of you have put your faith, your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You've been taken from the darkness, from the the, the world of darkness into the world of light. You understand the principle that, you know what, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. You know, just because you get saved doesn't mean you come, become dumb. You know, I mean, that's not what the word says. I mean, we need to learn to think. So don't, don't be, and the reason I share that with you is sometimes we're intimidated by intellectuals. At least I'll speak for myself, I know I am sometimes. And yet, you know what? It's, it's, we're really on a, on a level playing field. We're all in the same boat. I heard one pastor say, the only difference between you and me is I'm facing south and you're facing north. That's it. So remember, when you leave and you go out of these four walls, you're not going out there with your your big Bible to browbeat people into the kingdom by your slick little presentation. That's not what we're called to do. Are we to be persuasive? Yes. Are we to be bold in our, our, our presentation of the gospel? Definitely. And faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. And we know that not all are going to obey the gospel of Christ. But you know what? Within that, some will. So let's go out and share it with everybody. And hopefully some will be saved. Well, Paul here shares four excuses, and we're just going to look at the first one. But the four of them are this. Verse 18, it says, basically, they didn't hear. Verse 19 says they didn't understand. And then, kind of in an indirect way, verse 20, they were religious. And verse 21, God wasn't patient with them. So let's look at the first one. In our time remaining. The first excuse was there in verse 18. He says, well, is it because they didn't hear? The first excuse was they did not hear the gospel. Now, Paul here is asking a question. It's a rhetorical question. And the question is is in the form of a double negative. Which means this. You might want to better translate it this way. Not that they did not hear... That's really what it says. Not that they did not hear. And by using this double negative, the Apostle Paul was implying a negative answer. Is this really the reason for unbelief? They didn't hear? They didn't hear the message? And then he quotes from the, the Greek version of, the, of Psalm 19, the Septuagint. And Psalm 19 basically has two parts. You can divide it. This way, the second part is about the Bible, about the law of God, that it's perfect, it's trustworthy, it's, it's right, it's pure. It's God's special revelation to us. But the first part, the part that he quotes from, uh, Paul here talks about God's creation. 
And David in Psalm 19 was talking about God's creation, God's general revelation. Well, what's Psalm 19 say? You can turn over there if you want, but I'll just read it for you. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And verse 4 says this, Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That's what he quotes. He says, indeed, they've heard it. They had to have heard it, because it says... Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So he answers his own question and basically said, you know what? Don't, don't put your hand up and say, well, we didn't hear that. You, you, you can't do that. He's using a psalm of David. And he's pointing out, basically, the glory of God, the message of God has gone out in a universal way. He's kind of saying, even David, you guys know who David is, right? Yeah, well, even David understood this. And then he quotes. Notice it says, has gone out. That's past tense. Has gone out. And notice when he talks about their voice and their words, what's that? It's referring to God's revelation of himself. It's referring about God preaching about himself. How does God preach about himself? Well, he preaches about himself through creation. Every day you get up, every breath you take is a testimony that God exists. I used to work as a picture framer in between churches. And I worked at a fast frame in Mopitas. They did it for like 10 years. And I was in the back room mostly because... You know, in a picture framing store, one of the things you have to do is you have to help the customer with colors, with the, with the, you know, the photograph or the picture and the mats. And, you know, I'm colorblind, so I was of no use at all in the front room. But I like working with my hands, and it was very exact, precise stuff so I could get everything right. It was just a very rewarding job for me. But on occasion, people would, you know, too many people would be there, and they'd say, hey, Steve, can you go out and give us a hand? And I'd cringe and go, okay. Here we go, you know. And most of the time, I wasn't helping occasionally, but helping people pick out matte colors. But in this store, we had art that hung on the wall, framed art. And so many times, people would want to buy it. And so they, hey, I can complete that. Hey, you want this? Good. You know, ring them up and out away they go. So that was easy for me to do. I never had a customer look at a piece of art on the wall and go, wow, that is just really beautiful. Where did that come from? They never asked me that question. Not once. They would maybe ask me, wow, who, who was the artist? Or who was the photographer? But they never said, where did that come from? Why? Because with a painting or a photo... Or any piece of art. There's got to be an artist. There's got to be somebody who created that thing. That's what this is saying. That if you open your eyes and you look around, it testifies to the glory of God. It testifies to the existence of God. And the universality of the gospel is shown in other areas, but Paul uses that in particular. In Acts chapter 14, verses 15 to 17... You remember Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're preaching to the, the pagan listeners in Lystra. And these people basically here were, were uh, about ready to, to fall down and worship Paul and Barnabas. Because they healed this guy and then just the way they were teaching. So they brought all this stuff and they're ready basically to fall down and, and worship Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 15, Paul's and Barnabas' response to them wanting to do this was this. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Verse 16. And in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk 
in their own ways, verse 17, yet he did not, look at what it says, leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you the rains from the earth and fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, never forget, beloved, that the world is without excuse when it comes to their ignorance they have toward their creator, God. God is clearly in the business of preaching about himself. He does so consistently. He does so constantly. Remember all the way back in Romans chapter 1. When we started in verse 18. Remember what we talked about. It says there in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been perfectly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are what? Without excuse, it says. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise or intellectual, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So clearly God is in the business of revealing himself to his creation. The problem is the creation doesn't want to hear it. The creation doesn't want to see him. It's kind of like, you know, the young child when they get in trouble and they put their hands over their ears like, I'm not going to listen to mom yell at me because, well, that, that doesn't change anything. Well, does this mean that the gospel of Jesus Christ has really been preached everywhere to all people? Paul answers this question over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard, he says, before the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And then jump down to verse 23. He says this, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which... I, Paul, became a minister. Now, does Paul mean here that the gospel message has been preached to every individual creature in the whole world? I mean, clearly that's not what he's saying. He's using hyperbole here. Because we know of people groups that they've never heard the gospel. But it's a way to kind of help us understand that the gospel has been generally given out. He doesn't mean to every single individual. What he's trying to say, basically, beloved, is that the gospel is not hidden. The gospel is not hidden. In Acts 26, verse 26, Paul himself is in a conversation with King Agrippa. And they're questioning all the stuff that's been going on in the name of Christ. And in verse 26, it says, Paul addresses the king and he says, For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. This is Paul. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice, king. Then he says this. For this has not happened in a corner. In other words, this isn't some little secret society. This is something that's boldly been proclaimed. Even our great commission in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. That, you'll be our, that the Holy Spirit will empower us and will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria. And to the end of the earth, it says. So what Paul is saying is, you know, don't give me the excuse that you never heard this. It's pretty much been preached everywhere. 
The prophecy of the Lord really started at Pentecost. When you remember at Pentecost, all these people from all these different countries converged on one place. The church was born. The disciples were able to speak in language they they did not know, but they were languages. They weren't some gibberish. There were known languages. And the reason we know that there were known languages is because the, the people who were listening to them preach said, wow, how do these guys communicate like this? These are unlearned men and they're speaking in our language. This is pretty cool. The Holy Spirit gave them the gift of languages. And they communicated the, about the works of, of God. They communicated the gospel. These people were, some of them were converted. And when they went back to their countries, what did they do? They spread the gospel. And so the word had gone out all over the place. Turn over to John chapter 5. Because just like Paul was dealing with these these folks who were kind of questioning what he was teaching. And uh, they had issues with what Paul was teaching. Our Lord went through the same thing. And in John chapter 5, we see here the healing at the pool of, on the Sabbath, the pool of Bethesda there. And Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and scribes. And he's performing these miracles. They're hearing him teach. And they begin to question his authority. Because, I mean, granted, I mean, Christ is making some pretty bold claims, right? He's claiming that he and his father are one, that he's God. That's, that's a pretty bold claim to someone of the Jewish faith. You don't just go around saying those kind of things. And in verse 18, you see the reaction. They even wanted to kill him even more after he explained some more things to him. And then he points them clearly back in verse 24 of John 5. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so the Lord goes on in this chapter, and he points out all the way down in verse 38 of John chapter 5. He says, speaking to them, he says, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And then he says in verse 39, he says, Oh, don't get me wrong, you search the scriptures... Because you think that in them, or in that process, you have eternal life. Remember the pride they had? It's just coming out here. And it is they that bear witness about me. And then in verse 40, he says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What was he trying to communicate to these leaders? He wanted them to understand that they were drawing a a false distinction. A distinction they were saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus, you're saying all this stuff. Are you making this stuff up? Where's this coming from? After all, you know, we, we believe the scriptures. We search the scriptures. We have God's word. We're God's chosen people. And Jesus is basically pointing out to them, hey, you know what? If you think I'm up here talking about a bunch of uh, fairy tales... And somehow that you believe the real word of God. Then you know what? You need to start reading your scriptures, pal. Because you know what? Those scriptures that you're talking about testify of me. He says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Now Moses was everything to these people. I mean, you know, that's just who they looked up to. And for good reason. He said, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Let me say something. It just kind of popped in my head here. Whenever you set your hope on another human being, the game's over. I don't care who they are. I don't, I don't care how wonderful a pastor they are, or what an incredible intellectual teacher they are, or whatever. Don't ever set your hope on another human being. Because you will be disappointed every, every single time. Verse 46 says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And they're going, whoa, wait a minute, what are you saying? And then in verse 47, he says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
What, what Jesus is trying to point out is saying, hey, you know what? You already heard the gospel. You heard it through Moses. And so Jesus is basically saying, you know, fine, you go with your Moses. But you know what? You don't even understand what you're reading when you read his words. Because his words testify of me. And over in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Remember, this is on the road there. He says in verse 26, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27 says, And beginning with who? Moses and the prophets. This is Jesus explaining himself to his listeners there. He says, Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament wasn't completed yet, so he's not talking about that. See, Paul wants us and he wants the Jews here to understand that they have no right to say, oh, I haven't heard that message. They've been hearing the gospel through the teachings of of the prophets. They've been hearing the gospel through Moses in the Old Testament scriptures. So between Paul and the Lord... They point out that the Gospels, the books of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, think of Isaiah 53, all the other statements that go along with it. Paul even affirms this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he's instructing young Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to... Look at what it says, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Please do not fall into the trap, believers, Christians here today, that somehow Christians operate only in the New Testament realm. That's that's a lie from the pit of hell. You can take the Old Testament and you can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody. See, this is what Paul is referring to when he says these scriptures, these sacred writings. He's referring to the Old Testament. He says they're able to make you wise unto salvation. I mean, I'll just say it. If you can't find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, you're, you're blind spiritually. Open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes, even more importantly. So Paul here is saying that of all people, the Jews, who've been entrusted with all these blessings that we've gone over in previous messages, they're saying, well, we've never heard this. They have no right to say that. They had John the Baptist come, point to Christ and say, behold the Lamb of God. Jesus himself in his ministry in Matthew 7, he says, you know what, okay, if you're not going to listen to my words, at least look at my miracles. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that say something? I mean, everybody living, beloved, during this time of Christ, were talking about who he was in his ministry. They were talking about his miracles. And then beyond his miracles, there was the death on the cross, which was a big deal. And even more than the death on the cross was his resurrection, which was even a bigger deal. Whether they had seen it or not, at least they probably heard about it. Then you had all the preaching and teaching that continued after Jesus departed. In the beginning of the church at Pentecost. Most Jews during that time heard about Pentecost. I mean, how could they not? You had people from all parts of the civilized, civilized world coming to that one place. Then you have the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He crossed oceans and preached everywhere the gospel to make it known. See, they were without excuse. And what Paul is trying to do with, for us here is he's trying to make it very simple. The gospel is not some secret message. Don't be ashamed to share the gospel message with others. 
It's not some hidden code. It's not out of some mystery religion that was very common back in that day. He's basically telling us, you know what? You've been entrusted with the gospel. Be sure that you can go and share that gospel message with everyone. That's our call. But don't say, I never heard it. (laughs) And we'll go with the the rest of the excuses in a couple weeks. Let's close the word of prayer and we'll sing a song and then we'll have our communion time. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we know that uh, we're without excuse. We cannot stand before a holy God one day if we choose not to believe in you and say, well, it's your fault. God, you've given us evidence. Even if you've been here this morning and you're sitting here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, there's no excuse. You can't bring an excuse to the table that God would say, oh, okay, I'll give you a pass. No, we're all in the same boat. We're all held by our sin. And we need a Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ who came and he died. As payment for our sin. And then on the third day, the Bible says that he rose from the grave as testimony, as witness to his defeating sin and death and giving us the opportunity for the same, for victory over sin and death. That comes through Christ. And if you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ this morning, I I beg you, I plead with you to cry out to him. He loves you. He created you. He knows everything. You're not hiding anything from him. Cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, even in my unbelief, to put my faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. That's a prayer that he'll answer as you pray with a sincere heart. And for us believers, Lord, I pray that we would never forget the task that we have. It's undaunting. It's just incredible to take this message to individuals who may have a a general revelation about God, but maybe they haven't heard the facts of the gospel yet. And God has entrusted those facts with us to go out and share in a bold way, and yet in a loving way, this message of hope and forgiveness in Christ. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would enable us to do that. Help us prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning. Lord, this isn't something we just do out of habit. We're doing this because you've commanded us to remember this time of communion and as we take this cracker and this grape juice and we eat it and drink it Lord that we're remembering the sacrifice that you made on our behalf so I pray that you prepare our hearts for this as well in Jesus name Amen